Well, let's go to this uh, topic of Nehemiah. Uh, for I had a couple of you said, I don't even know who this guy is. Uh, and, and that's understandable. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time, unfortunately, in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scriptures. But one scholar has said that Nehemiah is the Winston Churchill of the Old Testament. He's undoubtedly one of the greatest leaders in Old Testament history. And if I take you to Jerusalem today, they're going to be quick to point out remnants of the wall from Nehemiah's time frame. Uh, he is hailed as one of the great heroes. Why is that? We're going to look at that. But I, we need to be all on the same page. So forgive me for some of you, this is old hat. You could teach this. Uh, for others of us, we're not as familiar with Old Testament history. And I need to give you a quick overview. If you remember, Solomon, well, David and Solomon, the kings around 1000 BC, they will bring Israel to its great glory, right? It's a unified land. And if you remember under Solomon, <clears throat> because of his sin, God said that uh, your son, I'm going to split the country, and he does, into two, Israel and Judah. Remember this? Some of you are okay. If you don't, that's okay. Israel in 722, I'm not going to give you a test over this. Israel goes into exile. They're taken by the Assyrians. Judah is left, and Judah's territory includes Jerusalem. And they remain until 586 when we have the Babylonians, and they will, in what we call deportations, they will take uh, the natives of, the, of a country that they take over, the Babylonians, and they will move them into another location. They're bringing instability so that they could control the property, right? That's, that's the objective. And so the Babylonians in 586 will destroy the temple. You remember where you were in 9-11? Well, for the Jew, the destruction of the temple was the ultimate. That's not just only the place of worship. That's the financial center. That is the social center. And having that destroyed would be equivalent to taking out, I don't know, the White House, Congress, um, all of it in one, one sweep. And so the destruction of the temple was huge. At this point, the Jews go into exile. There is a remnant. There is some left in Israel, but very few. And, and the thousands are either slaughtered or taken away. All right, so that's in 586. And this is setting up the scene for us, so bear with me. The next thing I want you to see is that Babylonian Empire falls in 539 under the Medo-Persian Empire. All right, I know, this is, this is a lot of data. And uh, uh, my daughter, she hates history. So we, I was trying to explain this to her. She goes, I really don't care. I said, I know, bear with me. So... <clears throat> In 539, Cyrus, the, the Medo-Persians are not like the Babylonians. The Babylonians, uh, they're not real friendly with uh, the Jews. Uh, they will exile them, etc. The Medo-Persians, on the other hand, understand the value of making the locals happy. They would, their, their political agenda is vastly different. And so they will allow Jews to go back eventually to this region, and they will rebuild the temple the Jews, the first thing they do when they go back to the land is to build the temple under Zerubbabel. And what do we know about this temple? Unlike the Solomonic temple, it ain't what she used to be, right? But at least we have a place to worship, and that's vital. That's key. And so you have 42,000 
approximate Jews that come back from Babylon to settle, resettle in the land. They rebuild the temple. This is where our storyline is starting. Ezra and Nehemiah are not the last books of the Old Testament in the canon, but chronologically they are. All right? The Old Testament is not arranged chronologically. I don't know if you knew that. But Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, and if you found Nehemiah, it may have taken you a little bit. It's after First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And then you have Ezra and Nehemiah because that's telling you the story of the land of Israel and Judah. All right, so First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah are like volumes of a history book. Ezra and Nehemiah were seen as one book in the canon until uh, medieval ages, middle ages actually, is when they were separated. But uh, many canons, Jewish canons in particular, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. And unfortunately, we don't have the luxury to look at both of those, but they're recording, Ezra and Nehemiah are recording the Jews coming back to the land. It's a time of great restoration, but... And that's what I want you to see as we go through this. And so the temple is finished and Nehemiah comes onto the scene in 445 BC. Another king of the Medo-Persians, Artaxerxes I, will allow Nehemiah, as we're going to see in this story as we, we study it, allows Nehemiah to go back and to build the walls. And you should immediately ask, why would a foreign king allow another country to fortify their city, right? If, if I was a king of another land, I wouldn't allow you to fortify your city. You've been an enemy of the state in times past. So why, why would you allow that? And that's one of the things we're going to answer as well. Let me just show you a map. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's enormous. And our storyline starts in Susa, which is modern Iran. <laughs> uh, yes, it's been a thorn then, it's a thorn now, right? And that's the storyline for us, the Medo-Persian Empire. And the king that we're going to see is Artaxerxes I. Let's look at Nehemiah 1. Let's look at the text. This is so important in understanding the backdrop. It says, these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. So happened that on the month of Kislev, this is December, in the 20th year. Now, the 20th year, is that's the year of the reign of the king. The king is Artaxerxes I. This is what it looks like. This was a coin that he minted, a ziglos. All right, so this is Artaxerxes I, uh, was in Susa the citadel. And so you, you have to ask yourself, okay, so we know Nehemiah is in the capital city. Later we find out he is the cupbearer to the king. He is in one very powerful position. We'll talk later about what does a cupbearer mean, but no one has access to the king they have, apart from the cupbearer. They have to go through Nehemiah. So this fella has risen to a very prestigious position in, uh, among the Medo-Persians. And it says that Hananiah, who was one of my relatives, it's his brother, along with some of the men from Judah, came to me, I, and I asked them about the fugitive Jews who remain from the exile and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant that remains from the exile there in the province are experiencing considerable adversity and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem lies breached and its gates have been burned. 
and then Nehemiah is going to break out in a great lament, and we'll, we'll see that. But this is Artaxerxes I. This region, if I go back, this region of Judea, this is Israel, all right, modern Israel. This region is called Yehud. Uh, it's that territory, and we know that they even minted coins. This is a Yahud coin. It's about the size of your pinky, into your pinky. They're really small. Um, <clears throat> so there is some autonomy in this land. The Israelites that have gone back have built the temple, and we'll see that Nehemiah will take this route to get to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and Nehemiah will rebuild the city walls, and this is how it would have looked at the time of Nehemiah. These are the rebuilding of the walls. This is... <clears throat> Right here is where the Dome of the Rock sits today. All right. So if you're in Jerusalem, that's where you are. This is the old city of David that goes down here. Um, <clears throat> this is a diagram of the walls and the gates that Nehemiah will build in 52 days, which is amazing. And we'll talk about that as well. And this area is a section that you can even see today. It's right about here. There's the Dome of the Rock. So you get an idea of this whole area that he will wall in, which is really not that large of an area. Hezekiah will, will expand those walls or earlier much larger than what Nehemiah has built. So the temple isn't what she used to be, nor the walls, but at least we have a walled city. All right, so that's kind of the backdrop. Any questions on the history? Well, that was a blitzkrieg. So in 586, the last of the Jews are sent into exile. The temple's destroyed by the Babylonians. 586, until this time frame, 445, we, we don't have any walls. The cities lay in ruins. About uh, 530s is when the temple's built, and then later the walls are built. And Nehemiah <clears throat> falls into this great landscape. Why would Artaxerxes allow the walls to be built? Because during this time frame, the Egyptians and the Greeks have been invading this region and are a thorn in the side of the Persians. And so the Persians, we know, archaeologically, there's evidence of this, they have fortified certain cities. That's why they're going to allow Jerusalem to be fortified. It serves as a buffer against the Egyptians and against the Greeks. So Nehemiah is at the right time, at the right place, by God's grace. Right? And that's the thing I want you to see as we look at this. Well, let's dive in. This is such a great book. Let's, let's move. Uh, that's a little bit of history. Thank you for bearing with me, but it's so vital to our understanding. Well, let me give you a layout of the book. This is under page two, under number one, its relationship to Ezra. Again, it is one volume, Ezra and Nehemiah. <clears throat> uh, and so when you lay out <clears throat> the book of Nehemiah, you really got to lay it out with, with Ezra. The goal is initiated. What's the goal in Ezra? Rebuild the temple. All the way through Nehemiah 7, we see the effort that has been taken to build that temple. When Nehemiah comes back and he rebuilds the wall, he's also got to purify the people. It's only been 50 years. But they've already strayed from the truth. The temple has been corrupted. The Levites have intermarried with, with the locals that are not Jews. And so Nehemiah comes in with these reforms, not just the walls. And, and so we see a rededication of the temple in, in Nehemiah. And eventually a praise and worship at the end of the book. All right. <clears throat> what Nehemiah does 
is, uh, well, we're, we're going to see a great leader, but we're going to see a man who's committed despite the adversity, and we're going to see that as well. Not only do the locals not care for Nehemiah, as you can imagine, many of his own people resist, resent him. And so we're going to see that as we move along, and that's laid out there for you. This is not a strict chronological sequence of events, right? It, it, this book has been laid out theologically, and I want you to see that as we move to. Questions or comments on this? This is a lot to digest at 7 in the morning, but, but trust me, it, it'll be helpful. Let me, let, me, let me give you a few things as we look at this, this uh, genre, that's the literary type, the style of Nehemiah. Let me give you three things to look at. Number one, as we read this book, there are times when Nehemiah says, well, I did this and I saw that. You, you already saw this in, uh, right? Verse, look at verse 4 of chapter 1. When I heard these things, I slumped down crying and mourning for several days. So we have first person. So there's times when Nehemiah will speak. It's subjective. It's, it's not as concrete. Other times we use third person and we have this narrator that comes alongside and says, well, now let me tell you some things. It's very objective. All right. And, and it seems to straighten some things out. And we want to watch that because it's going to banter back and forth in this book. Secondly, Nehemiah's rhetoric and actions are downplayed by the narrator. You would think we named the, the book after the guy. I mean, it would just be Nehemiah would be like the best thing since sliced bread. And yet you see his warts. You see his issues. And why? Because the author, the narrator, wants us to see a much bigger picture of a faithful remnant, a body of God-fears that have come along. We're going to serve this God, this Yahweh. And so he wants you to see that as you move. This isn't just about Nehemiah. All right? And that's very important as we move. And third, the genre. Genre is a literary type. Uh, we have the same today. You don't read a newspaper like you read a love letter. They're different genres. And this type of genre, Nehemiah, is what we call a memoir. <clears throat> it's an ancient memoir of someone who has been personally involved. And Nehemiah is obviously directly involved in building this. But what about the theology? What are, what are we going to see as we journey through this book? Number one, the sovereign hand of God should not be missed. And you think about it, it's been over a hundred years since they've been exiled, right? You now have, you've, you've lived under two major world powers, the Babylonians and now the Persians. And who would have thought that a Persian king, Cyrus, would allow the Jews to go back and build a temple? Interesting, a side note, and I'm, I'm not endorsing a particular political candidate, but there are coins that are being minted in Israel with Cyrus and Trump's portraits on them because they see him as the new Cyrus uh, for what he has done for Israel in the last couple years. I, I'm just, I, it's a very interesting thing, right? So you see that and they go, why Cyrus? Because Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back to their land and build the temple. And for many Jews, Trump is that one who's, who has 
moved the capital back to Jerusalem, who has understood that the Golan Heights belonged to Israel. And so they see him as their modern day Cyrus. So it's interesting, but that's where they're getting this. I want turn to chapter 7, verse 5. I want you to see this. <clears throat> Artaxerxes is not a follower of Yahweh <laughs> by any means. And yet, God uses Artaxerxes, even in the midst of persecution, etc., of the Jews, he uses Artaxerxes to allow the Jews to return and build, a to their, build their walls. In chapter 7, verse 5, Nehemiah says, My God placed it on my heart to gather the nobles, the officials, and the people. Did you catch that? You think, God is the one who's doing all this. It's not about me. This is what God is doing. And, and I know many of you could testify, you see the hand of God. And sometimes we don't see it in the midst of the, the difficulty, and, and maybe we won't see it this side of eternity. But other times it's very evident, isn't it? I look back and say, oh, that was a God moment. God did that. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. It's God who is orchestrating these events. Artaxerxes is nothing before God Almighty. And he will do God's bidding. Secondly, you're going to see as we go through this book, is the people of God are called to remain faithful in the good times and in the bad. Yeah, Lou. He speaks right when he said that. He spoke about a book of genealogy. Did they have those things? Yeah, there would have been... Um, we know there are some ancient writings that we don't have. Uh, um, that there seems to have been books that were recorded, things that were kept down. It, it's during this time frame that the synagogues will appear first. Why? Because they're trying to preserve their tradition, right? You've lost the temple, you've lost your identity, and so synagogues will arise to try to, traditions, traditions, right? To hold on. Same with the genealogy list. You don't want to lose, you know, this is the tribe I belong to, et cetera, et cetera. And so some of this is, is at this time frame um, that, that's occurring. Same with the written law, et cetera, passing this down, the oral traditions. Look at chapter 9, verse 32. Look what Nehemiah says here. In this section, the, the people collectively join with Nehemiah. Nehemiah does this in chapter 1. He says, I am a sinner and my people have sinned. And, and now as a good leader, he's brought the people to a, a, an understanding that they too have missed the boat. And it says in 932, so now our God, the great, powerful and awesome God who keeps covenant fidelity. I mean, that's what's ringing through the bottom of this. You turn this tapestry over and a, um, a thread that's woven all the way through this is God is faithful. Right? Even though you messed up as a people, God is faithful to the promises he's made. And notice what they state. Do not regard and inconsequential all the hardship that has befallen us. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our prophets. And they're all guilty from the days of the king of Assyria until this very day. You are righteous. And we who have been in the wrong. Our kings, our leaders. On this goes... Do you realize that formal idolatry in the land of Israel, that is the worship of Baal or an Ashtaroth, right? You know that from the Old Testament? It does not cease until the exiles under the Babylonian period. It's only then that they realize, oh wait, we shouldn't be involved in formal idolatry. 
and it ends. The problem is the heart is still sinful. And that's what Nehemiah wants to show you as you go along, that we still must be faithful. And in fact, this is the third thing you are going to see through this book is, yes, the Jews have returned to the land. Yes, they have a temple. And now they even have walls around a city, but they are not fully restored. There's still an answer that needs to be given to the people. And I would argue that ultimately that is Jesus. The, the heart is still struggling. And even in the midst of this, Nehemiah will go back to Susa after he's accomplished rest, reforms, built the walls, built a governor's palace, and he'll go back to Susa. And then he returns, and it's a mess. He's got to bring back reform again. And so look at the end of chapter 13 of this book. I mean, you would expect, whoo, this is a glorious day. He built the wall. That sounds like... Trump, right? Built the wall. Everything's wonderful, <clears throat> right? In verse 30, so I purified them of everything foreign and I assemble, I assign specific duties to the priests and the Levites. I mean, Nehemiah is not a priest. He said, I, I had to reform them. I also provided the wood offering at the appointed times and also for the first fruits. Please remember me for good. Oh my God. I mean, there's this idea of, oh, there's something yet to be done here. We're not fully there in restoration. It's looking to something else. And, and that's kind of this undertow that's, that's through this book as well. So three major theological themes I want you to see as we go along and as you're reading and studying. is Number one, God is sovereign. And I don't know about you, but that is a great promise. <laughs> There's times when I go, yeah, God is still on the throne. I don't understand it when... You've got Kim struggling with cancer, and you see all of this, and, and it rocks our world. It, it reminded, yeah, God is still here, and we are called to remain faithful, even in the midst of it, good times and bad. And the full restoration of his people is yet to be realized. Notice there's a quote from McConnellville in his commentary there under that third bullet on the top of page three. He states, the events that occur under Zerubbabel, that's the guy who comes back and starts to build the temple. Ezra, who finishes the job and brings um, kind of reform. And Nehemiah, the guy we're studying, are not God's last words, but merely a, necess a necessary setting of the state for a far greater act of God in which his search for human obedience within the covenant is finally gratified in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. That's where we're headed. All right. So this amazing book is all the more amazing when we realize, no, we're looking to Christ. Well, let's look back at Nehemiah 1. If you would, just turn there. Is this introduction. We'll just highlight a couple things, and then uh, I want to give you a few things to walk away with in light of Nehemiah. Again, we've, we've pretty much talked on this. We're going to highlight, and Nehemiah will, that he is the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. That is why he's in the capital city. It is also why he gets to see these foreign dignitaries that are coming. He has a front row seat to all that is occurring, right, in, in the courts, in the royal courts. Uh, Susa is not just the capital to the Persian Empire. It's really the capital of the world. You saw the map of the Persian territory, right? Uh, this is the world power of the day. So, I, I don't know, comparable maybe... Uh, uh, 
uh, we really don't have a, it'd be like, uh, he's kind of like the Mike, Mike Pence of the day. Uh, he, he's right up there beside Artaxerxes. He, he has Artaxerxes' ear. And as we're going to see, even though he goes to, he's very careful, he goes to Lord first. But Artaxerxes, I mean, think about Artaxerxes. Nehemiah is a perfect candidate. You trust him explicitly. You know he's loyal. So who else would you want to fortify a city on, you know, on the border and protect your interests, right? Because you know the locals don't care for you. But Nehemiah is, uh, he's a lover of the Persian Empire, etc. Use him to protect the people. But ironically, even though he's in the capital city, Nehemiah's greatest love and interest is the capital of the Jews. That's Jerusalem, right? That's his heartbeat. And so when he hears this news that the people are being oppressed and will soon see that they are and that they have no protection from this onslaught, it weighs heavily on him. And as, he, as we're going to see next week, we're going to study his prayer. It's absolutely amazing. It's one of the best prayers in all of the Bible. Uh, you won't want to miss it as we look at that. Questions on those first three verses, though? We don't know a lot about Nehemiah. He mentions his father and his brother. His brother will become governor of the land. <laughs> a little bit of nepotism, but that's all right. Uh, he's loyal. Uh, we'll, we'll learn more about Nehemiah as we move. <clears throat> well, let me give you some things to walk away with uh, and, and why we're studying this. I've given you a little with the theology, etc. Nehemiah, to me, um, you know the name J.I. Packer? He says, Nehemiah... Apart from Christ, Nehemiah is the most um, uh, what life-changing figure he's ever studied. He loves Nehemiah. In fact, he wrote a book uh, uh, on this, a commentary of sorts on this book. Nehemiah is a man who's passionate about glorifying God. You look at his prayer, the opening prayer of chapter 1, it's amazing. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at that, but uh, in fact, I quoted uh, Packer here at the bottom of the notes of page three. A humble, reverent, business-like, single-minded commitment to the hallowing of God's name and doing of His will. I can't think of a better person to study as we launch 2020 is to look at Nehemiah. Secondly, he, Nehemiah is a man who understands that he is dependent on the Lord. I want you, Look at chapter six of Nehemiah. <clears throat> Here's a guy, he comes, he brings all the resources, rebuilds the walls in 50-some days. He does almost all of this reform in a year. And he makes an amazing statement in 6, 15, and 16. You would expect him to say, you know, let me, I've written a book on how to build walls. I've written a book on leadership. No, notice what he says in 6.15 and 16. So the wall was complete on the 12th day of Elul in just 52 days. When all our enemies heard and all the nations were around saw this, they were greatly disheartened. They knew that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Isn't that amazing? He's quick to glorify God and understand, no, he is in charge. This isn't about me, right? And, and that's what we're going to see as we move through this book. I mentioned there in your notes on page four, the mighty men of faith, such as Moses, Daniel, Nehemiah, faced great opposition, but they remained faithful and accomplished their God-given task because of their view of God, right? 
And then third, he was known as a man of prayer. Prayer is mentioned several times, approximately 10 times in the book of Nehemiah. This man is often on his knees and understanding. In fact, the book begins with prayer. It ends with prayer. And if you study the uh, Luke-Acts, that two-volume work by Dr. Luke, and we're walking through Luke in Sunday school class, nine times Christ is found on his knees praying. I remember Howard Hendricks saying, if the Son of Man needs to pray, how much more we? Uh, right? But nine times. And in the book of Acts, every chapter implicitly or explicitly mentions prayer. Every chapter. Uh, I think I mentioned this to some of you. Uh, I was talking to a friend who is from South Korea. <clears throat> and they were talking about the churches and the planning. And uh, there, there's such a revival in South Korea and such growth from the church. So why is that? And, and you know, I don't see that growth necessarily here in the States. He goes, well, it's very easy. You guys don't pray. He said, we pray. He said, we start our prayer services. He said, it starts at 7 in the morning on Sundays, and then we have a Wednesday night. You know, we, we pray. And, and Nehemiah is going to demonstrate very clearly the power of prayer, the importance of prayer in, in his work, in the task that God has set before him. And we'll see that. Well, I've titled it, Character in the Midst of Crisis. Nehemiah is facing great crisis. <laughs> and we're going to see. He's got opposition from outside. He's got opposition from within. And yet he stands strong. And he demonstrates that, that one who is dependent on God. And I can't think again of a more timely book. And we're going to unpack that as we go along. There's a quote down at the bottom of your notes on page 4 from Spurgeon. <laughs> a minister in Great Britain during the 1800s. He says, a good character is the best tombstone. Now that I've turned 50, I've thought about tombstones, right? <laughs> Those who loved you and were helped by you will remember you when you forget-me-nots have withered. Carve your name on hearts, not on marble. That is Nehemiah. Yeah, he knew he had a task to do, but you're going to see a man who's far more concerned about the people than the task. Yes, he, he, he also will complete the task. But again, it's the reform of hearts and drawing people to God. And so I'm excited about our study. Questions? Comments? Cries of outrage? Yeah, Kyle. You know, as you catch up, thinking, you know, what, what about this Nehemiah? But is, is, the way the Bible's laid out most of the time, chances are he's just a normal guy because it, yeah, there's. Uh, he he's probably an aristocrat that he's risen to the surface to the level he has, and he will. There's elsewhere we're told that his family were buried in Jerusalem. Um, nonetheless, he he still puts his on, on his underwear and pants just like us every day. You know, he's not a super saint, <laughs> right? Oh, yes. Yeah, we don't have a, this is uh, most likely not a descendant of David. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, he's not a high priestly family. None of that. It's a man who's been given a task and he, he stands in the gap. Yeah. Joseph. 
Yeah, Joseph's the, uh, similar to Joseph. And think about what Joseph told his brothers. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He understood the sovereign, sovereign hand of God and was faithful, even the probably 14 years in prison, in Egyptian prisons, he did not waver. Now, I'm sure there's some days where he struggled. We don't have that in scripture. But he remained faithful. Yeah. So Susa exists today. There is some ruins from Susa, but I don't plan to participate in that archaeological dig. <laughs> uh, it is in present day Iran. Yeah, it's sad because there are some very significant archaeological sites in Iraq and Iran that just politically would, it's just not very advantageous. There's nothing, I'm going back to this, we don't have any indication as to why Cyrus chose Nehemiah. Uh, Cyrus did Zerubbabel. Um, the Persians, there are records outside of the scriptures uh, where the Persians allowed the locals to go back to their land uh, to, to have worship, to, to, to settle, etc. Their uh, international or foreign policies were vastly different than the Babylonians. The Babylonians purposely moved people around as chess pieces uh, to disrupt the political climate. The Persians, on the other hand, took a whole different approach, and that's why Cyrus allows Zerubbabel to go back. And we have Cyrus's decree, by the way, that uh, he allowed that. Uh, we have the remains of that. So there's so much archaeological support for what we see. But far more significant is that this Nehemiah is, is looking to Christ, right? And the storyline that there's a restoration yet to take place. And that's what we're going to see as we move in the text. Let me pray. Father, today was a little bit unusual. We weren't diving right into the text, but kind of giving an overview. But it's an essential overview because there's so much here. Dates, names, places. And it's easy to get the, the ball lost in the weeds and, and, and realize... No, we, we got a beautiful story of a guy who is faithful and models godly character even in the midst of great adversity. Lord, as we study this text, we just pray that these principles would be ones that we can implement. <clears throat> Thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for the stories of Moses and Abraham. As Kyle pointed out, they're sinners just like us. They are individuals who had to make a meal, had to find sleep, etc. They, they lived just as we, and the struggles, etc., and yet they were faithful. And what models they are for us as we look to live for you and glorify you. Be with these men this week. Thank you for our time around the Word. In Jesus' name, amen.